Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Welcome back to Better Than Life, the episode by episode breakdown of Red Dwarf. I'm Fergus, co host and big, big fan. I'm John, and I'm on my first rewatch in decades. We're joined by our producer, Alex. This time we're looking at Series 2, Episode 1, Crichton, with Nat Lertzimer. Hit the theme tune. It's a show about a man who's lost three million years in space. His company and evolved cat and a hologram he hates. Plus a fussy robot and a ship that's gone senile. We love the jokes and sci-fi stuff, that's why. It's better than life. Our guest this week is going to bring us into Series 2 in proper style I reckon John what can't she do she was one third of sketch comedy powerhouse Jigsaw she's a BAFTA nommed filmmaker and screenwriter she's written wonderful books for people of all ages but most importantly she's a fan of Red Dwarf oh, yeah. it's Nat Lertzema hello hello I am I'm such a big fan of Red Dwarf thank you so much for joining us to talk about this this program let's get right into it when did you first hear about the show when when did it first kind of come into your radar see we were just discussing this before we started recording and like I was sure that I was just there with the first episodes as they aired and then you look at it and it first came out in 1988 and I'd have been six years old and I was like I think I'm just pushing things up my nose at six <laughs> I think I must have caused some repeats and I also think I must have come in on repeats on about season four. But I was also reading the books and like I just have a really strong formative memory of being about 10, 11 years old and refusing to go on holiday with my family because we would miss Red Dwarf that Friday. Oh, wow. And my parents say, you can record it. And I was like, it's not reliable because it was like a VCR, a VHS system. And you had to like preset it with little dials and like and so we tried it days in advance and it did work. And like the whole holiday was just like, well, I'm going to miss that episode. Life ruined. Dreadful. Mm. I've still never seen the end of Quantum Leap because somebody broke into my house and stole the VCR while the last episode was being recorded. You're joking. Oh no, God. I'm not joking. So they grabbed a machine mid mid war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They kicked the back door in. It was the only thing they stole was the VCR mid-record. Absolutely tragic. Years later, I got Netflix. It was all on there. I went, oh, great. I can finally see how Quantum Leap ends. Never got around to it and they took it off. So I still don't know. <laughs> Old Mother Time is talking to the kids now. Like, you've no idea how valuable something was when you could only watch it yeah. at one time of the week. Now, like, I just sit and just let, like, any award-winning stuff wash over me. And I'm like, now I'll watch it. Mm. Like, God, mm. Friday nights, they used to be all 
killers. So you came in around repeated series four. Was there a moment or a series that made you go, oh my gosh, this this is this is the thing that I've wanted to watch my whole my whole life. I loved it from the off because as a young kid, I was like a very sort of anxious, yeah, I was just a really anxious young kid, and I really feared adulthood. Like I don't know why, and it kind of, and it was definitely a thing that kicked off a massive eating disorder at a very young age because I didn't want to grow up and be an adult. And I watched a load of comedy that was basically middle-aged men acting like kids <laughs> and I found it so comforting and it's only with hindsight years later I can go that's what that was that's why I found that so comforting so like Red Dwarf Bottom the Young Ones I think Peep Show as well later it's just like yeah. adults acting like kids with seemingly no responsibilities and I was like cool okay it's gonna be all right so like I just <laughs> I felt really safe and held in Red Dwarf in the way that nothing ever seemed to change which kind of is childhood, right? That like yeah. nothing changes for years. And then it changes far too quick and you panic. That's a brilliant perspective because Lister embraces that, right? Where Rimmer is more of a mm. proponent of the duty of growing up. And mm. he's the bad guy. He's the one you're supposed to laugh at. Yeah. yeah. And it's weird, isn't it? Like there was nothing about women. Mm. It was all men. It was like somehow the idea was like if, if you were a woman, it was almost like adulthood would inevitably come for you. Like it would just have to. So yeah, it could always be men could just sort of stay this like irresponsible age for like years and years and years. I think I definitely internalized that. Sitcoms in the in the nineties were dominated by men. Eighties and nineties were dominated mm. by by big male casts. Yeah. Do, do you associate that gendering and that coding with with your childhood? Like, do, you were just aware of of having male comedy idols. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I had no female comedy idols. Like I thought Victoria Wood was amazing. But I, but I didn't identify with her the way I identified with Rick Mail or with Blackadder mm. or with like, I had all these comedy heroes and they were all men like twenty years older than me, mm. and it did take me quite a long time to find a comedy voice. Although I remember talking to like other stand-ups about it, and the men were saying the trouble is though you can hear our comedy influences immediately through us because we're also men. But if you're channeling mm. like a Rick Mail. It's not actually as obvious. And I was like, yeah. that is a very good point. That's a really good point. Yeah. And being gross as well. Like being gross didn't feel like quite such a female thing to do. But all the men I like, like Bottom was so gross mm. and so disgusting. I used to watch it with my dad and we just both found it really funny. And then we'd watch Eurotrash afterwards. <laughs> yes, Eurotrash was, was on then as well. There's, there's, there's so, there was so much squalor on our tellies. <laughs> yes. I was actually watching some Red Dwarf just before this. And I was eating a sandwich. I had to stop at one point. Like quite a lot of Red Dwarf is a bit gross just in terms of like bodies and like fetid squalor. Mm. And like it's sort of like a prison comedy as well as anything else. Yeah, yeah it is. In series eight, they, they literally put to list, well, all four, five of the main characters in prison. Did you get that far with it? Not on this rewatch, but I do remember watching that one as well. But I, yeah, remember, once you put them in prison, you're like, it's kind of the same. Yeah, it's that, they that's were the thing. sort of held in stasis, weren't they? Do you remember when your love of the show maybe started to drop, though? Or was it just as you grew up, you started finding different sources of comedy and, and maybe even some female comedians? Oh, God, God forbid I found some female comedians. No, I think I remember sort of TV just becoming a bit less integral to my life. When I was 17, I learned to drive and I got a car and that was like, because I lived in the suburbs so there wasn't much to do until you had a car and then my world exploded so tv was just not very important to me from 17 years old to about 20 mid-20s mm. really it, and it had been my world in my teenage years but then i just dropped out of it altogether but yeah i never remember going off red dwarf but i think like if i love a world if i love a, a, a franchise i'm just it i'm uncritically it like all the jurassic world films i watch them all and i'm like really yep good to be back in the world no 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 <laughs> <laughs> that's very patient of you wow very patient i'm just glad to be there i'm glad there's more of it it's not as good as jurassic park but it's better than nothing to the extent that you're confused by other critique other people's critiques oh, no. of it i completely understand what they mean but it's like your sister-in-law complaining about your brother you're like yeah i know but I mean, what are we going to do? Kill him? <laughs> He's here. We love him. We just got to roll on through, don't we? And like, yeah, I, I never like gatekeep stuff I love because I've always got like the original that I love. And then you can keep making less good versions of it. Okay. There's always something in it that I enjoy, right? And even like a bad Red Dwarf episode, there's still something in it. Like it's never, it's still the people that you love. Given how male 
dominated the cast was. It doesn't come across as too masculine a show, or am I just imagining that? No, I think it sort of knits together quite beautifully as a family. I think, like, obviously not this episode of Crichton, because this is when we just meet him, but I think, like, a series later, Crichton definitely becomes mum. And probably, like, Holly is, like, disinterested dad. Even Sati Hayri, it's still, like, they're your parents. And then, like, Rimmer and, and Lister are just, and the cat are just, like, siblings and... So, no, it doesn't feel like stereotypically masculine or too laddie. But then, to be fair, even things like men behaving badly, if they'd just been out and out laddie, I don't think people would have loved them so much. Yeah, that's true. I always felt that the young ones and Red Dwarf particularly had an edge of it not being about gender over even bottom, where it was two men obsessed with sex, for example. Yeah. Where they're, no, they're obsessed with sex in Red Dwarf as well, but it somehow seems more silly and innocent. And Yes, it's true. And even in this episode, where you think there's going to be some women, you just know there aren't going to be some women, don't you? You just know. <laughs> and I think that's maybe a problem with the later series. We have Christine Kachansky as a character. It's just like, you're not real. You're Dave's dream. <laughs> right, right. You can't be here being all clever. I love Chloe in it. I thought she was a very good uh, addition to the cast. She was, she was great. Apparently I'm in a minority. No, no, I think she was great. I think perhaps there was just a real feeling from the writers of like, she has to be really smart. She has to just be like really cool and mm. smart and all, where everyone else is like a grubby, grotty loser. It was never about cool, was it? No. It's literally the point that none of them are cool. Yeah, exactly. But I feel like Kaczynski is cool. And like, that's a decision the writers made. Mm. I guess to be like welcoming or like uplifting their female... Yeah character that it's like now she should just be just as as them she should be an absolute loser as well but like i guess there wasn't really a blueprint for like watching a woman hammer the dirt out of her socks like it probably would have been very weird back then well they had that one gender swapped episode of red dwarf didn't they where they met their female analogs yeah and it was weird because it was literally rather than reinterpreting it for a gender to different gender it was a mirror imaging of it yeah so it was still masculinity played out by a woman rather than the feminine version of grossness and squalor but one thing that's interesting again i might be in a minority about this but i thought lister was cool like pouring milk on yourself and not caring about it is not something i can do if i spilt milk on myself i'd probably be like oh no yeah and and do something about it his fecklessness i always thought was being sold as something to be admired or something to be envied sorry no you are right like there is something very cool about lister because he likes himself like that is always his redeeming feature is that he likes himself you there's only someone you can look down on someone who looks in the mirror and they're like i'm fraud but i'm i like myself whereas rima hates himself so he's just one big walking target of like bullying because he's already bullying himself. Oh my gosh, that's such a good perspective. We'd, we'd obviously we've been talking about how much Rimmer hates himself, and the last episode we talked about is Me Squared, where he shares a room with himself and and calls himself things like distended piece of rectum and stuff. You know, it's, it's pretty harsh stuff. The idea that Lister loves himself and that's why they're an amazing odd couple—that's that's really interesting. Yeah, and he does, and maybe that's what makes him cool. Yeah, thank you. You've answered Red Dwarf. <laughs> I've won Red Dwarf. Um... <laughs> And maybe that's why it's so appealing to a teenager that, like, as a teenager, you're kind of disgusted by yourself a lot of the time. But Lister's never disgusted <laughs> by his body. And he's the most physical of all of them. Like, you're so yeah. aware of all his physical body excretion. Rimmer hates himself and has no body, but still is disgusted by himself. And Cat is immaculate, and the other two are, like, mechanoid. And so... So it's kind of quite cool to see Lister being a, a, a human being with a body that is really gross, and yet he just accepts it. And that's probably quite like nice for a, a teenager to watch because puberty is so weird and gross and like changing. But off the back of that, maybe part of what makes us feel that that Lister is cool also is that Lister likes other people, right? Lister is very accepting. Yeah. Of everyone they meet, Rimmer hates other people. Rimmer's always looking to one up himself. Or he's always looking for the way in which they're trying to undermine him. Lister just likes everybody. Yeah. Even Rimmer on some level. He's quite mean to Rimmer quite a lot of the time. But he sticks around. Yeah, he does. <laughs> he's got a lot of choice. You no, know, well, that's very true. He's very captain. But like, but you can see as well that like, so they've both got horrible upbringings. But Lister's was one of neglect. And he seems to have like risen above it. Like he doesn't mm. care for himself very well he wasn't raised to care for himself but Rimmer like he's just got his mother and his father's voice in his head the whole time and they're clearly like really and I probably maybe I only think about Red Dwarf this much because I thought the book was so illuminating yeah like I wish more writers did that that they give you a tv show you love and then you get a book where you can read everything that they had to cut out yeah in order to film it and get it short and tight enough 
And there's so much stuff in there that you're like, oh, of course. And all those characters hang together really well. I mean, not the cat, but in some ways the cat is is not really a character. He's sort of a loose collection of vibe. The shame about the cat seems to be that he stands apart from his own species mythology. Yeah, he doesn't really want anything, does he? Like, Crichton wants things, Rimmer wants things desperately, Mister wants things, but Cat, Cat and Holly... Yeah, he's not striving for anything. Yeah, it's true. No, but maybe that that is just writing five characters, maybe at a certain point, like three step forward and two fall back a little bit, mm, yeah. and maybe it's how it has to be. How weird does this episode feel? The majority of watchers of Red Dwarf know it as being the show that has Crichton in it. Yeah. But you go back a couple of series, he ain't there. I, I, I watched series one and two as they were aired and then and then understood that Crichton was replaced and recast for the beginning of series three. So going back to series one and two, I'm like, I, I don't miss Crichton. What are your Crichton feelings generally? I love Crichton. I really do. I think it's a funny one. I definitely feel like Crichton is very female coded. And I do find it kind of funny that, like, if I didn't love the show so much, I'd be like, wow, you could have got a female character. And you did. You just got the most feminine robot you could find. I mean, they're creating it. <laughs> I love him. And I forgot this wasn't Robert Llewellyn's. So when he first popped up on the screen, I was like, mother? <laughs> what? what? <laughs> have you gone? What's happened? And, like, and he's great, but it, it definitely... It's a weird character and I feel like it took Robert Llewellyn a little while to like settle into what that character is. And so to judge this actor just off this, especially when you bear in mind he's done eight hours of makeup before he sets foot in front of the camera. Yeah. Like, yeah, that'd that'd be hard to like G yourself up lot. for. It's a lot, isn't it? Apparently as well, I think I read that he was allergic to the latex. Oh, you're joking. No. I think he was quite itchy under that. Oh, no. Yeah. The actor who played the original Crichton was also claustrophobic. Oh, my days. Oh, they did say he wasn't available when they came back to him. He was like, yeah. oh, I'm not emotionally available. Yeah. <laughs> it seems to have got to, to Bobby Lou as well, because he's, he's, I think, a big reason why they can't use the original cast of Red Dwarf anymore is that Robert Llewellyn's just like, I can't be put, I can't, even if you've got it down to three hours a day, that's still three hours a day of putting on bits of rubber mm. and there, his his body shape is changing so Crichton has changed shape which traditionally robots oughtn't I don't mean to body shame androids but you know no 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 that reminds me of the Alan Partridge thing where Coogan used to be in makeup for like hours to look like uh, Alan Partridge and over the years he just sort of has to put the gilet on <laughs> that's, like... it, that's it that's it oh no, oh, no. <laughs> yeah I think I'd struggle with that but it's true there are old episodes of Partridge where he looks older than he does now because of the makeup that's so true yeah yeah, yeah. they always aged him up and I think they just reached a point where the makeup lady probably approached him and went you're good as it <laughs> oh no what a day for what a day for Steve Crichton's journey from very fussy robot to slightly more humanized takes a few series once he's a regular yeah. character they seem to achieve that entire arc in one episode in in, in this one so that it does feel like robert llewellyn had to kind of reset the character a little bit so maybe it helped to have a different actor doing it i think it's a really good point because it's really weird to me when he suddenly gets all dirty harry on on rimmel and, and when I saw that, I was like, well, that's a bit quick. Like, because you can't really turn your screenwriter hat off. You're just like, mm. oh, it's a bit jagged. Yeah. But there was a huge cheer from the audience. And I was like, I wonder if they shot a couple more scenes that didn't make mm. it into the edit. So it doesn't feel that brisk to the studio audience. Oh, that's really interesting. I'd always assumed in that moment that the audience were championing Rimmer being insulted as opposed to yeah. Crichton's liberty. But actually, no, you, of course, that's a, that's a cheer for emancipation, isn't it? They're all British. They love that because they'll, yeah. ne they'll never achieve it for themselves. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's talk about this episode specifically, but just before we do, it's, it's a contentious question and there are no wrong answers. How would you recast this show for a current modern day nowadays reboot one name came to mind immediately i was, I was thinking about lister because the thing about lister is he's kind of loose and he's loopy he is authentically himself isn't he i think barry keegan oh, oh his 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 guilelessness mm. in um the banshees of nisharan yeah great yeah. great show yeah, yeah great i thought show. so i was like he's a little bit mad but somehow even with the chaos he's still positive and humanist yeah the things that you'd need dave lister to be Ooh, that's that's nice yeah i was pleased with that was pleased with that then then it wasn't quite so obvious to me. With the cat, I was like, I think the cat's got to be a dancer. I think such a huge part of cat is his physicality. And you want a dancer, and I, and like, and I love his confidence. And I was thinking, 
I'd love to see someone like Hannah Waddingham. Oh, wow. Just yes. be so alpha, so confident, but like meeksy and like fluid and oh, sexy. Oh, wow. That would be very cool, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She'd bring that. She'd bring a very different type of sensuality to it, wouldn't she? Oh, yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Lovely choice. Great. Great. Brighton. <laughs> I mean, it's a little expensive. I'm going to say this now. I think the execs <laughs> are panicking, but the reboot is expensive. That's right. This podcast has made it extremely popular. So they're throwing money at it. A24 <laughs> <laughs> on the phone. We can get Barry. Crichton, I think Simon Farnaby. Oh, lovely. Ooh, okay. Yeah, that's very I've, nice. I've not zigged or zagged the way I did the, with the others. I think that's just a good... I mean, she might not thank us when he's on hour four of the makeup, but... <laughs> Sorry, Simon. Again, I don't think this is a weird choice. I think Holly Diane Morgan. Oh, cool. Do you know what? You're not yeah. the first to suggest Diane Morgan mm. for Holly, in fact. I think not there's surprised. something about her. She's not aloof or arch, but she is somehow disaffected by things happening. Yeah. Although I haven't seen Motherland, so I, I can't comment on her, her masterwork. No, I haven't actually either. But her as Kunk. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Like, so deadpan yeah. and so unpredictable. Mm. For Rimmer, Rimmer's really hard because, as you say, Rimmer hates himself. And, like, and I I think Chris Barry does such a good job where it's not uncomfortable to watch him hate himself. I thought you were going to say it's very obvious that Chris Barry hates himself. <laughs> no, I hope Chris Barry is just very comfortable with himself and his British Empire money. So do we. So yeah, you, I think you can't have someone who seems genuinely a bit on the edge. So again, a bit pricey. But I'd be, I'd be interested in a Rimmer who's Phoebe Waller-Bridge or Ellie Kemper. Oh, wow. Ellie Kemper. Kemper, doesn't she derive too much sympathy? Yeah, do you know maybe. What I mean? she, yeah. Does, she does play self-loathing characters, but so sweetly that you kind of want to go, oh, no, don't hate yourself. Whereas Rimmer, you're like, do hate do yourself. Do hate yourself, you absolutely <laughs> must. That's what I thought. Like, that's why it was weird. All the characters, all the actors I could think of were female for Rimmer. I was like, it's quite challenging to watch a woman hate herself. Well, maybe that's it. Yeah. She's got the skills to do it, certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was your choice before Ellie Kemper? Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Brilliant. I think you could see that, that sort of brittleness and that kind of like, you know what, scrap Ellie Kemper, never mention that. I'm going to stick with PWB. Oh, no. I'm sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean to... No, I think you're right. I think you're... Listen, it's a casting discussion. We're just throwing <laughs> ideas around. We'll go out to agents soon. I might get into trouble for what I'm about to say, but I do think that that self-loathing female characters have been pretty thin on the ground because I think male executives don't like that, don't like doing that. There's some weird ickiness 100%. I think it makes them very uncomfortable. I do think Phoebe Waller-Bridge is part of a, a front of, of female performers changing people's minds about that. Yeah, it's a hell of a niche to work. It is, but if you can't, if you have the niche, you're going to get work, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what an extraordinary cast. A amazing work. Every name you said was both surprising, but somehow... Perfect. Perfect, yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, it's hindsight. I wish I'd built up to Barry Keegan. I think that's I think that's my best one. <laughs> I think it makes you go, yeah, that's Lister. I'll just make sure I annotate all of that to make sure. Yep, okay. That's Great. on record now. Thank you very much. Which means it is time, finally, to talk about the episode specifically. John, will you take us through the episode? I will. Here is everything that happens. Season two. It begins with a shocking revelation. Kelly wasn't really with Simone that evening. She spent the night with Gary, which means Brooke Jr. isn't Brooke's android. As we're reeling from that, we find Rimmer has memorised a variety of complex phrases in Esperanto, but after eight years of study, he has no idea what any of them mean. Lister, meanwhile, has become relatively fluent by osmosis. Their snarky banter is interrupted by a distress call from crashed spaceship Nova 5. It's a well-spoken mechanoid, the titular Crichton, who we saw earlier engrossed in the soap opera Androids. He explains all the male crew died on impact, but Miss Jane, Miss Tracy and Miss Anne survived. Our intrepid crew spend the next 24 hours getting ready for a rescue mission, soundtracked by a hectic bass and sax concoction that on reflection possibly marked the moment the 1980s died. <laughs> on arriving at the Nova 5, they're all surprised to discover that Jane Tracy and Anne are even deader than slap bass and have been for some time. Crichton heads back to the dwarf, but the funk he's in runs even deeper than that bass line in Howard Goodall's Going Out on the Pool music. He was created to serve and have no regard for himself. Now he has no idea what to do. So Rimmer puts him to work keeping the ship ship shape. Lister is sure Crichton must sometimes want to do something just for himself. Crichton admits his idea of fun is to watch androids for half an hour a week. I can forget I'm me and sleep when he has strange thoughts, like being in his own garden, alone, with all the things he's made live. 
Lister encourages Crichton to rebel, follow those dreams, find a planet with an atmosphere, plant that garden. He shows Crichton movies, leading to Crichton sabotaging his painting of Captain A.J. Rimmer by situating the space adventurer on the toilet where he belongs. Crichton is rebelling, and to prove it, he disappears on Lister's space bike in full Marlon Brando Wild One regalia. So, I have to say, I loved Crichton when I first became a fan. I think he was my favourite character, but that was the Robert Llewellyn days. Season four was my first season. I would have seen this episode after at least two, if not three, series of classic dwarf cast. I remember this as basically being the episode with the crap Crichton. I was so happy to be proved wrong. David Ross is fantastic. I really enjoyed it. What did you guys think? Yeah. Same. He's different, and it's really, it's really disconcerting seeing him be different. I, I remember seeing first ep- first series of Blackadder when I'd always seen season two onwards, and being like, "Who the hell are you people?" Mm. But with this Crichton, you're like, I think Robert Llewellyn probably took quite a bit of these characterisation in, in, into his portrayal. So yeah, no, he doesn't feel like crap Crichton. He does feel different. He also he has quite a challenging storyline. It's bleak as. Sh- to like be taking care of <laughs> yeah. his three dead people but also he's got to keep it comedic he can't play like the real real tragedy of his life he's weaving like quite a, a, a deft middle ground yeah he is and i've got some ross trivia for you i love the way you look to the side as you said that like i've got a little bag of trivia <laughs> it's it's ironed of course <laughs> so for a start he would have come back to play Crichton in series three, but he was in he was in a really successful play at the Old Vic, so he couldn't do it. So too good for his own good. Another deeply disturbing anecdote. So Norman Lovett says that uh, during filming for this episode, he went out for lunch with David Ross. And about halfway through lunch, David Ross apparently looked Norman Lovett straight in the eye and asked him, "Are you legit?" <laughs> which, which means apparently are you from the theater you know are you a proper actor i thought it was like a mafia thing well yeah, yeah it the... sounds like it doesn't it yeah. it does sound well, like theater it. is the opposite of mafia it is li- the literal opposite of the mafia yes exactly yeah but norman took it the wrong way in a really a really dark way he thought david ross was asking if his parents were married or if he was born out of wedlock <laughs> wow and he has disliked david ross ever since that moment they have according to the internet they have yet to reconcile and they may never i sort of respect it when people are like i dislike that person they just stick to it for the rest of their days i know i know it's petty but i'm like no. yeah i mean it particularly given that it was just a misunderstanding yeah he wasn't even asking the question that norman lovett thought he was asking i guess the fact if norman lovett still doesn't like him then you have to assume that david like never walked it back yeah yeah, just sort of let that hang in the air while the waiter just stood between them going had some very awkward in it we are collating so many reasons why david ross didn't come back for season oh yeah (laughs) oh yeah i actually auditioned with norman lovett did you yeah i auditioned to play norman lovett's wife in a restoration play oh my god um i was meant to be a bit younger than him (laughs) and then we rode the tube back together and we did have a slightly awkward moment where we both realized oh we're doing 12 stops on this tube together settled it and we just had like a lovely chat about his wife and her antiques and their dog and he was such a nice man and i never really at any point was like by the way i grew up watching you oh. i was like do you know i'll leave i'll leave it because i i just felt he would have been uncomfortable at that yeah did you ever see the norman lovett show his sitcom no i don't think i ever did i never did actually because of red dwarf i was following him and he i mean the ideas are incredible i, I remember the first episode very clearly he it starts with him uh, dusting his house and he destroys a cobweb, willfully, deliberately destroys a cobweb. And then the spider says, oh, thanks, Norman. I can only make five of those in my life. And you've just taken out one. You've taken out 20% of my houses in my life. And for the rest of the episode, you watch Norman Lovett trying to work out how to make a cobweb. At one point, he's trying to knit one. At one point, he's got like pins on a, on a board. And he's oh, I love it. bits of fabric between them. It was so good. But it's really expressed like... That niceness, like the the persona he chose to play when it was his own show, yeah, yeah. It was an absolute sweetheart, and a, yeah, a, yeah. How funny that even got commissioned. Can you imagine pitching that now? <laughs> What's the cliffhanger? <laughs> can spy- spiders only really make five webs in their life? That can't be true, can it? 
It might have been for comedic setup purposes. I don't What's know. Hyperbole. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it is sometimes used. We don't like to talk about it, but apparently, it, apparently, it is out there. Shocked and appalled. Well, there we go. This has been very educational so far. This discussion of this episode. Learned an awful lot. I'm now going to start asking people, "Are you legit?" Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Are you legit? That could mean anything. <laughs> I think it's fair enough that he was offended. Are you legit? How? If you have to ask me that, mm. then you're then you're wondering. Mm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like, are you talented? And it's like, well, <laughs> that's that's the that's the comeback to it. I don't know. Are you talented? Personally, I'm hoping they're going to finally get around to, to making androids because it's great, isn't it? It's so compelling. <laughs> it is good. Did you watch the credits? Yes, it's lovely. All the names are Android followed by yeah. a code. Like that's that's good. That's that's Futurama. Futurama yeah. nicked stuff oh, they did. off Red Dwarf, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Only the good bits. Also, that theme tune is definitely Neighbours. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the it's yeah. the inversion, right? Yeah. Neighbours, Androids. There's a little stitch back to episode two of series one. When we see it's on Groovy Channel Twenty Seven. Oh, Groovy Funky Channel Twenty Seven. Yeah. I think that's where all the TV they watch on Red Dwarf is because someone went Groovy Channel Twenty Seven. That's good. Let's just use that. Let's just stick with that. Yeah. Yeah. Plus Esperanto. Nat, were you aware of what Esperanto was when you were watching this? Yes, I was aware of what it was. A lovely idea, isn't it? It never took off, did it? Like, I think perhaps you just can't build a language from nothing. I think a language without roots and history is just a bit soulless, maybe. Yeah, that soullessness absolutely comes to light in this episode when you hear someone actually speak it. <laughs> yeah. Germanic sounds next to Mediterranean romance sounds like it's... it's... That's it. You're just like, whoa. It is weird. Charmita as a greeting is like the the single most pretentious and extraordinarily dreadful yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except that I did used to use it as a greeting. Oh, God. Albeit ironically. Yeah, ironically, that's fine. No, not good enough. No. <laughs> Charmita. It's so. Oh, oh. I just assumed it was a made up thing, like a made up futuristic thing, but it's actual Esperanto. The teacher told me about it at school. I remember it's one of those things like, oh, what a lovely idea. And then you actually like just read about it for 10 minutes and you go, no, no one wants to speak that. Yeah. It's so lovely though. Esperanto, the derivation of the word is hope. Isn't Esperanto itself Spanish? Esperar is Spanish for to hope. So Esperanto kind of means like. Hoping. Oh no, it's in French as well. J'espère is, is yeah, I yeah. hope, and I imagine Italian therefore is probably something similar. Sorry, Italian listeners. Hello, Italian listener. <laughs> Babel fell for a reason, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. But also just like such a tin ear for like how that language is going to sound. Just be like, you know, when you mix all the colours and you yeah. get brown, and you're like, that's <laughs> <it's Grando." laughs> I thought it'd be a rainbow. Well, it's not, is it? It's horrible. You know, speaking of language, it is yeah. very funny rewatching a TV show you watched when you were a teenager. And realizing how many jokes that are just like woven in as part of your vocabulary mm, and your culture yes. have come from there. Like it's like ever listening to Conan O'Brien and realizing that when he was writing on The Simpsons, I was watching as like an open-mouthed little baby bird. Yeah, and just yeah. took it all in. The idea that Conan O'Brien wrote the monorail episode yes. is mind-blowing to me. Yes. And he's just got this like these sort of things that he finds funny, like these oldie timey like um as was the fashion at the time. And it's like, yeah, and then he, and he put that into The Simpsons and we watched it as kids. And so, and now that's what I find funny as well. And like, mm. yeah. Was it one of our guests though? Was it Foxcroft who talked about Simpsonization where you watch The Simpsons and then 10 years later, you're watching the thing that The Simpsons parodied. Yes. And finally and that joke yeah. makes sense. Yes. And then you laugh. Red Dwarf must do that as well. I'm pretty sure I've seen Americans do that. The, the Rimmer salute. How funny. Yeah, and that can only be the rumour salute, right? It's too silly. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com.
watching Red Dwarf now, I was like, this has aged fine. It really it has. has. For the most part, yeah. yeah, you'd like some more female characters, but also like there's worse crimes in the world and there's plenty of shows now that don't have that many in. And also, yeah, it kind of makes sense, the style of comedy it is, that it is just a bunch of lads on a spaceship. And the funny thing is, in this episode, I did think like, should they have held back that revelation that all three women were dead until the Red Dwarf crew arrived? And I thought, no, because you don't think for a second that they get to win, do you? You don't <laughs> think for true. a second that they're going to meet three women and like maybe one will fall in love. Maybe one will just have a great friendship with one. Like, you know. Also, dramatic irony is they must have chosen that. And I bet you there were two different versions in the edit. Because right. watching Rimmer pump up his own pomp yeah. is glorious to behold, knowing that it's going to be pricked and deflated so instantly. Absolutely. And knowing it definitely. Because it's one thing to have a suspicion that it probably won't work out for him, but knowing exactly that it won't work out for him is more delicious. And like you just know as soon as they come in that Lister is like bracing himself to, to give one of the wingman lines that River asked him to do. And when he leans <laughs> forward and he says, just to let you ladies know, my mate Ace is really brave. And the woman in the studio audience screams laughing. It's brilliant. It's such it a good so scene. Well it's so well earned. Yeah. So, so well, well done. And that scene makes me realise as well, which I don't think I'd realised before. I think it's quite a small studio audience because I can hear individuals yes. enjoying it and reacting to it. And that's quite fun. It's a bit like it's being screened in front of like 50, 40 people. Yeah. It feels really warm as well. They feel like fans. I guess they might have been by season two. Some of them at least. Season one, you definitely get some some moments where you feel like that would have earned a laugh if people understood yeah. what the hell they were watching. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Laughs are thin in series one. So it's really nice to hear proper guffaws and even, a, even an ovation during this with Cat being stuck on the mirror. Yes, that's lovely. Yeah, that. that's it. When they clap, it does feel really warm and it does feel, it feels like they're watching a fringe show, which like, <laughs> yeah. given yeah. how cheap it was, how cheap those sets were, it probably felt a bit <laughs> like it. Do we mind if I talk about something geeky with this episode? Yeah, go for it. I think this is the place. I was. I want to talk about the set really briefly for this episode mm. and, and specifically the, the Red Dwarf Quarters set. How much time has passed between these first two series? In my head, it's years. Oh, really? And there's even a bit where Lister says to Rimmer, you've been learning Esperanto for eight years. Is that mm. eight years since Stasis League? I think it's quite a long gap as well. Quarters look properly lived in. They feel properly sick of each other. Which, which justifies their excitement, I suppose, in leaving the ship and going and meeting new people. Well, yeah, so this is the season when they realised they were going to run a bit thin on ideas if they didn't leave the ship, right? So they, yes. they gave them Blue Midget. And I love those sets. I love those dinky little sets when you see them, like, they look so light. Everything looks so light. <laughs> when this episode started, I thought to myself, oh my God, that's a really cool miniature shot. And then I put on my glasses and... Yeah. <laughs> I think I like that about it. I still believe they're inside it, but it's definitely three inches big. Also, still massively preferable to the CGI versions, right? Oh, massively. It's been lovingly crafted mm. for its time oh, yeah. and its budget. Yeah, no, someone made it in their garage, and I love that about it. There is <laughs> something proper chic and ramshackle about Red Dwarf, and yet it doesn't feel too dingy because it's in space. And I think that's kind of genius that, like, yes. anything properly dingy like this is things like uh, like Sean Locke's sitcom mm, 15 stories high yeah it was genius it was really funny yeah but like it, it was a little visually depressing because that's how it's meant to be but somehow with Red Dwarf you're like at any moment you could have a shot of space can I ask a, a question again this might be one for Alex to answer more than the three of us but is that a British thing you know, we talked about squalor earlier on. Having like nasty looking buildings as your prime building, like having having run down areas, having frankly negative characters. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking that. Like when I was growing up, a lot of the comedy I watched was quite ugly settings, quite depressing, and really quite old people. I was watching like Waiting for God, May to December, One Foot in the Grave, and I was just like, why was I a child, <laughs> a literal child? watching all these middle-aged or old people last of the summer wine i was watching all the time like <laughs> it blows my mind that then there was a period where tv was just desperately chasing youth because i was like as far as i'm concerned when i was young adults were like this is the culture and you go okay. yeah <laughs> right, yeah and kids you can you there are four channels of it you can take it or leave it yeah right right here's uh, a tasty factoid about our favorite mechanoid when uh, when they were naming the character Crichton, Rob Grant and Doug Naylor, well, I guess you'd say they made a very legit choice. He's named after the title character of a smash hit stage play from the year 1902. The play's called 
the admirable Crichton. Although they changed the spelling Crichton, C-R-I-C-H-T-O-N. Interesting character arc for the character Crichton in the stage play, though, who's obviously uh, not a robot. Crichton is a butler to the Earl of Loam or something like that, who is uh, one of these quite recognisably modern characters, actually, I'd say, for a play over 100 years ago. He likes to tell all of his friends that he doesn't believe in the class system, that he thinks these artificial boundaries need to be broken down. And Crichton, the butler, finds this an incredibly embarrassing viewpoint because, in his view, a civilised society needs these divisions. Anyway, cut to act two, and uh, they all get shipwrecked on a desert island. The Earl, his family, and Crichton. Crichton is the only person who's got any skills at all of a practical nature. So he becomes the leader, and they're on this tropical island. Amazing. For two years, he becomes the the, uh, undisputed leader. He's about to marry the Earl's daughter when they hear the sound of a ship, and they're rescued. And then act four, they're back in Britain. All the roles back in place. The Earl's son, I think, is pretending that it was him all along that kept them alive for two years. Oh, my God. Crichton's just going along with it. And uh, in the end, he, he has to leave. He renounces his service because he realises that he can't be with the woman he loves. And it's a comedy, apparently. I think there's a dissertation to be written that Butler characters are traditionally the most tragic characters in film. Yes. Television and plays. Yes. Tragic, but also they're always the one with the nouse. They're always the one that seem to have more guile. Definitely, yeah. I think it's often a thing, right, that lords would be like in war with someone of like lower orders. They'd get back home and they'd they'd say, be my butler. We can continue our friendship, possibly often a love affair. Mm. but you'll be my butler. Really? Is that how it happened? Well, unless film is lying to me. Film has lied to me before, so... No way. No. No. Shut up. Only in the service of a greater truth. I mean, that's another segue, but I do think all the characters are so well-named. There is something about the name Lister that just sounds so honest but grotty and, like, and Rimmer, perfect. There's that brilliant bit in this episode where Rimmer tells Lister to stop calling him Rimmer because the way he hits hits the rim rim makes him sound like a toilet disinfecting thing. Definitely dirtier versions of that joke that were more about the anus weren't there and they had to settle with toilet disinfectant. Speaking of which, (laughs) I'm a bit surprised that Lister comes out with arsehole so bluntly. That to me feels like a bit of a weird non-red dwarfy kind of moment. Yeah, but I forgot how clean it was. Like, in some ways, you're slightly watching a kid's TV show and then mm. it goes really bleak into, like, the death of... of, of and even then, though, the death doesn't feel, like, completely yeah. real. It doesn't hit you as hard yeah. as it could. But, yeah, it's like, I, I, I realise, yeah, there's so little swearing in it and that's how you end up with, like, the word smeg being the word f- for them throughout the whole thing. Mm. And I have, like, a core memory of being a child and Googling smeg one day oh my God. as a kid at school because I had no idea where that came from. And the, and the origin of that word horrified me to my core you know how your phone is listening to you and and if you talk about a certain thing enough then it will start giving you things oh no (laughs) i don't want anything to do with that word please i got advertised or posted to this thing because clearly i've said the word smeg a few too many times (laughs) recording this podcast i got the details of a way of making a diet camembert it says that if you collect at least according to the recipe, 100 grams. No. And that's quite a harvest, right? That's quite a yield. Yeah. <laughs> Clump it together and put it in your fridge. Yeah. And a few weeks later, you get something that tastes exactly like camembert, but has hardly any of the fat. So thanks to the internet. Oh. And thanks diet cheesemakers, I guess. They found an organic way of making it good for you. I'd question if that's good for you. I don't think there's much <laughs> harvest of your own body that your body wasn't like, we're getting rid of this for a reason. Mm, it's gone yeah, it's for a reason. Yeah, it's on the outside. For, yeah. yeah, right. It's like yeah. when people drink their own piss, it's like, no, your body... Yeah. Has decided. Thank you. That's going in the outbox. The good stuff isn't there anymore. If there it's was good there. stuff, it's not in that. No. Yeah, it, <laughs> it, it's possible that the end product may be better for you objectively than eating a camembert, but not emotionally. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's not worth it. it. Oh. It is quite teenaged, isn't it? Like, it is funny that, yeah, they're early 30s. I'm such a, maybe because I'm naive, but I, I I think they could have come to it naively. They could have just gone, what's a silly word that we've heard and don't really, the word smeg could have osmosed into their heads. No. Mm, smeg, true. that's a name for a fridge, isn't it? Oh, that's funny. No. No, you're cynical that's about it. definitely a dick thing. They knew what they were doing. And to be fair to them, if it's going to be their equivalent of f- it can't be something like fnoof. It can't yeah, be yeah. silly. It <laughs> yeah. kind of it, it's like Esperanto, right? Esperanto is soulless because it's got no roots. Mm. So if you're going to make up a word, you probably need it to have a disgusting root. So it really has some mm. force mm. behind it. We discussed in series one. It looked like Naylor and Grant were trying out 
swear words like modo. Yeah, you get some that don't come back. Rimmer says a couple of times, but doesn't. They're there, they kind of drop them. Smeg is the one they take with them. I like arsehole. I like the arsehole drop because it's so brutal. It's so like, all right, he's really saying that. And it's really appropriate for the way that Rimmer is behaving. Leave it alone, Lister. It enjoys doing the tasks I give it. I mean, that's one of the most reprehensible things that Rimmer says in the whole series. In the script, it was actually butt suck. Right, now we know why it happened. Craig Charles said, I don't think I can say that. Not say that. No. That's really strange. It's funny though, isn't it? It's like when when Rimmer does say like it enjoys doing the laundry, it's like, oh, you get these little dips into Rimmer's soul where you go, you'd have a slave. You brought a slave on board this ship. Like you really are a reprehensible piece of Crichton is definitely coded coded feminine but male. The idea that, it's, that he, he would be an it is crazy. Yeah, right, right, right. And every time since, while recording this episode, I've thought to myself, oh, should we be calling Crichton he or is it it? Yeah, he dresses he in like a tuxedo and stuff like that. But the way he moves is very fussy. It's like it's, it's very high to the bouquet. Yes, it is actually, yeah. I guess, yeah, Robert Llewellyn plays him in the same way as well. And I guess that is the funniest way to play an android. Otherwise, you've got like some sort of like Star Wars knockoff. Yeah, that's true. The cheapness of Crichton is, sells him for me as well. Yeah. The fact that he's not turning up all gold like C-3PO. It's BBC Two in the late 80s. You're getting a man in a suit. Yeah. And it has to be rubber and latex in an actual suit, in a tuxedo. That's a weird choice. Yeah. And that tuxedo looks plastic as well. Like a lot of their costumes look like at the end of the day, they would have just fallen apart. <laughs> yeah, they do. It, yeah. Was it all made quite cheap or was there a point, was there a series where suddenly the, the budget jumped up? They definitely threw money at it when it went on BBC One, which was what, Series 7, right? Yeah. And they filmed everything on film without an audience and then did that thing. Well, they did that thing where they played the audience the recording I don't hate that well there are shows these days that confess to doing that Ugh. because of uh, because of Covid lockdown mm. protocols there were a load of panel shows particularly Taskmaster have I got news for you needed to be oh, filmed weird, in isolation yes. and then shown to an audience yeah the thing is you do get a lot of laughs off cut and so it's such a shame to lose that laughter. Like, you know, just the classic things on being like, there's literally no way you'll get me in a wheelbarrow. Cut to you, they're in a wheelbarrow. But of course your audience won't laugh at that because they don't have the juxtaposition. So mm, so true. if you've got your audience laughing at some jokes and not at the other, your audience kind of sound a bit thick. <laughs> and that's not very fair to them. In production for this episode, they talked about covering the skeletons in the Nova 5 ship set with black curtains before the scene where Crichton enters. And that wasn't supposed to be revealed until they started the scene, but the masking came off early and Paul Jackson was very annoyed. Oh, oh. To, as in it was, they wanted to keep it as an audience reveal in the moment. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Wow. Oh, Paul Jackson, that's that's good to try to preserve some spontaneous reaction. It's, it is good to try, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I feel there's like several different ways that that could have just been more harrowing than it could have been funnier. Like if you yep. really think these are three living women and then they're suddenly caught like skeletons, you'd be like, oh, oh God, mm. it is a bit Norman Batesy. That is true. He has a very familiar relationship with them. Do we think that he was applying their lipstick when they were alive, for example? Or is that something he's only doing in this moment because oh. they seem to have run out of energy to do it themselves? How did they die again? Was it sudden? It's never really explained. The male crew died on impact. It's not clear whether the female crew also died on impact and he just didn't realise, or whether they actually were alive for a bit and then just died and he hasn't noticed. If they died on impact, the chairs that they're sat in would be at the front of the spaceship. Yes, presumably, yes. That's a very good point. But that sort of means they got iller and iller, and so perhaps he started putting on their makeup while they were alive, but very ill. And see, at that point, like, you do think about it way more than you want to for a comedy show, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I'd assumed that they'd died in the impact as well, but he had arranged them at that table. But again, that's just what I'd do. (laughs) I think they mine some real beauty in this episode out of that very simple conception, that simple conceit that he's just made to serve, and that's it. That's what he does. Yeah. They run the full gamut of it from the comedically horrible thing of him uh, tending to the skeletons and serving them tea all the way through to these absolutely lovely bit where he, I mean, it's heartbreaking. That thing that he says about androids, which you just assume is just a throwaway gag at the culturally mighty neighbours at the time right at the beginning of the episode. And then it becomes a half an hour a week. I can forget I'm me, which is just like... One of the saddest yeah. and truest things in the whole show. Yeah. And his dream of being in the being in the garden with all the things he's made live. That's a beautiful line, that. All the things I've made live. Yeah, he's a very poetic 
character, really. In many ways, I guess that character sort of has to be like a big, tall, strong white man, right? Any other version of that Crichton is perhaps, I don't know, too upsetting, you know what I mean? Right, like, yes. Even just a female character saying, oh, I'm just built to serve. Oh, no. Yes. What? Oh, Christmas. Yeah, no, that's... Yeah, right, right. I think audiences even back then would be like, I like it. Yeah, that's a very good point. It really does make you think as well. It doesn't matter how much the show on Rimmer. You can't ever feel sorry for him because you'll yeah. always turn on a sixpence and be like, such a dick. Yes. And you're like, you <laughs> don't true. deserve nice things. <laughs> you shouldn't have nice things. Because as soon as you get it, you're just like, I want more and more and more and I want everyone else to have less. It's like, there you go, Rimmer. You've ruined this again, haven't you? You're so right, but how come we keep watching him? That The character you're describing is someone I would objectively out of context not to want to spend hours of my life watching and yet <laughs> is it the performer is it the writer it maybe it's all of it yeah is it I mister reckon. as well the other side of that same coin kind of thing. yes and just sometimes these like glimmers of self-awareness that he knows he should be better and could be better and he reaches for it and it always gets dashed out of his hands like he's a really badly put upon character and i think it's kind of genius like you know some characters they're just so wretched it's depressing to watch them, right? Mm. But Rimmer's not that. No. He's not that. And I think he's got this real bounce backableness. Keeps trying. Keeps he? trying. And it's not just like, maybe tomorrow will be better. He's like, maybe tomorrow I'll be the king. And you're like, okay. Yes, it's delusion. It's delusion it's plus delusion. self loathing that, that makes it acceptable and funny, I guess, as well. Dying doesn't like dent his his cockiness and his like belief <laughs> that he true. will be king of everything. God, you can't even pick up a cup. Okay. On BBC iPlayer, you will find the most wonderfully enticing and intriguing piece of marketing copy. BBC iPlayer have about 15, 15 words to play with for the casual viewer browsing the site trying to figure out if they want to watch this episode. I'm so stingy. You've got to make every word count in a situation like this, right? So how enticing is this? Things are fine aboard crashed spaceship Nova 5. And t- I mean, things are fine. That's 20% of your words <laughs> to say absolutely nothing. And it's not even true. Anyway, things are fine aboard crashed spaceship Nova 5 until Red Dwarf answers its distress call. What? I don't want to nitpick because it's it's a copywriter doing a job and they probably had to write this for every episode. But like, I feel like you shouldn't begin with, with the guest spaceship. No. Begin with Red Dwarf. Begin with something interesting. Like, just make it all interesting. Yeah. They might as well have said, Rimmer meets an unemployed service mechanoid and asks it to redecorate his bunk room. Like, that's as accurate a summary mm. as things are fine. I'd say this is inaccurate because you said yourself, things aren't fine. No, the, the, impl- the, in- the inference is very much... Things are fine on Nova. It's not even an inference, yeah. it's written. No, 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 no. Yeah. Things are okay. Then the Red Dwarf crew turn up and things go wrong. Yes. Red Dwarf cocks it all up. It's like, it's rare I'll defend the crew of Red Dwarf, but they really, there's nothing they could do to make that better. There really isn't. And no mention of any of the characters as well. No. No. The introduction of Crichton. Yep. We're meeting Crichton for the first time. No. Hooray, you know Crichton. You love Crichton. Here he is first time. It's important that we state things are fine. It sounds hilarious. I had a bit of time on my hands so I tried to apply this formula to uh, movie masterpieces right and it is oh, no. it is possible to ruin all of them it turns out so things are fine aboard the engineer juggernaut on LV426 until the Nostromo answers its distress call that's Ridley Scott's alien but do you want to watch it because I don't <laughs> yeah I love that. things are fine at Nakatomi Plaza <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Exactly. You can do it to everything. I love that game. You really can. Yeah. It's brilliant. I just feel such tiredness behind it. I feel like such a tired copywriter was <laughs> yes, like, yes. Oh, all the series, all the series. I'm 24. I've not seen any of them. <laughs> That's probably it. They're watching the first five minutes of each episode and they're like, oh, yeah. that happens. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Anyway, Shade has been cast upon BBC iPlayer once again. There will be more, no doubt. Nat, thank you so much for joining us. We have thoroughly crightened the Crichton out of Crichton, but before we stop crightening it, can you please crighten us? What is your favourite moment in the episode Crichton? Oh, do you know, it's when the crew walk in and they realise that the women are all dead. And that's a very bleak sentence. But just <laughs> see Lister just, just winding up. every like Everything Rimmer has been saying to him for the last five to ten minutes has all been set up, set up, set up to all be paid off. To, 
to now rinse him in front of three skeletons. It's so perfectly judged, perfectly paced, perfectly performed that they 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 let that laugh last so long and 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 ride it with those those follow up lines from Lister. It's yeah. that could have been a bad scene with no laughs, and it's it's brilliant. It could have been harrowing, but like, but yeah. Mm. And again, it's like it's actors that really know how to like ride the laughs in a studio audience, and like that is a real skill in itself. It's like yes. it's really true sketch stuff. Well, yeah, and I think as well, like you have to take the sting out of three dead people by it looking so makeshift, so mm, rickety, that's true. so like. We've hired these skeletons from a shop. We we don't even own them. <laughs> <laughs> there's not a, there's not a gram of actual flesh or anything on them. They are no, science no. lab skeletons. A hundred percent. You probably still see the the iron hooks in them. Yes, there is something about Red Dwarf's budget that just has a tiny little sprinkle of not real all yeah. over it. So yeah. even when it gets really bleak, it's not real. It's not real. Oh, it's been amazing. Thank you so much for guesting with us. Thank that you. It's really, Pleasure. really cool. Where, whereabouts can people find you? Do, do you know what? Just at Nat Lertzema pretty much anywhere. I don't know what social media will still be up and running by tomorrow, frankly. Um, but I'm sort of, I'm on Twitter as long as it's bearable and I'm on Instagram, but I mean, there's a lot of shots of my plants and I will tell you what I'm working on. Oh, nice. Magic. That sounds fun. Are you, are you, do you have any working on anything really exciting at the moment that you're allowed to tell us Oh, about? I've had several feature films in development for 10 years. So there's that. Um, I've got a few books coming out for like tweens and a couple of TV series that are in development. But I mean, who knows? And I'm working on my first play, which is a comedy set on an anorexia award. Wow. You've got you've got it all going on. You're wow, a quadruple threat. I mean, wait, wait until something goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how exciting. And thanks again for, for, for being on our on our podcast. Oh, pleasure. That was great. Yeah, really There's a was. lot going on. Yeah, yeah, so much. Really getting into it. These episodes are getting bigger and bigger. What else is getting bigger and bigger is the pile of e-mail and social media comments from our listeners. It really is, isn't it? Can I give a special shout out this episode to Warp Tangler, who won the competition to spot the deliberate mistake in series one uh, that several times I referred to Captain McAllister, not Hollister. So yeah, congratulations to Warp Tangler, who left a review spotting the gag, which, as I say, was was deliberate and was in no way related to recording some episodes near Christmas around our annual Home Alone rewatch. As I say, we're lovers, not experts, right? 100%. Thank you, Warp Tangler, for bringing that to our attention. And Richard, who commented on the cat back in Series 1, has been in touch again, leaving this lovely comment. I think it was around Episode 5, actually. I'm enjoying this so much. I've rewatched Red Dwarf many times, but never at this pace, one episode a week, taking the time to properly focus on each instalment. I'm quite surprised to discover that, in series one at least, my childhood pick of the cat is still my favourite character. In this episode, the gag when he pretends to respond to Rimmer's call for help and then immediately goes back to his meal made me laugh more than anything else, which has me wondering, in how much detail was business like this scripted, and how much was Danny John Jules? Do we know at all? Mm, good question. First of all, thanks for your comment. That's yeah. lovely. If any listeners have more lovely things to say, or have any questions for us make sure you email us at betterthanlifepod at gmail.com or do the social media thing at it's btl pod so to rich's question there is evidence right in the making of documentaries of a couple of things around this question mm-hmm. firstly it's apparent that scripting was pretty tight right there wasn't a huge amount of room for improvisation right but secondly, they did have Danny John Jules in the cast, who basically approached the writers and Ed By every now and then going, um, hey, guys, I, c- I can do this. Check this out. And then do something hilarious and physical. I don't think it was him approaching the writers. I think it was just all of them hanging out and noticing he had certain skills like rollerblading. And that's how that got written into one of the series one episodes. Maybe based on what you're saying, then it was actually another product of the that old uh, electrician strike. Mm. that gave them a bit more time to kind of hang around with each other and work this thing out and they just kept going hey Danny can you do this and yeah yeah right rather than Craig Charles learning another chord on the guitar they uh, they prioritised <laughs> Danny being hilarious and physical so yeah I think that the answer is that those moments were definitely in the script second draft certainly but entirely written for DJJ himself yeah absolutely now, this is great this is like Red Dwarf Detective Agency stuff here. <laughs> Set us challenges and we will answer. If we don't know, then we'll just best guess it. Yeah, I, I best guessed it and then was corrected by Alex. So that's, we got there in the end. Lovers, not experts. <laughs> exactly. 
But actually, our, uh, one of our listeners has beaten us to the idea of being a Red Dwarf detective agency because we've had a very <laughs> interesting email indeed from a listener called Dave who solves a bit of a Dave. mystery for us. He says, Hi, BTL Pod. I am absolutely loving the podcast. I, this isn't like last time when I made up what the listener had said and pretended they'd been really complimentary. He did actually <laughs> write actually that. actually saying this. He really John, did say this. This is Dave. This is mm. Dave. He also exists. Right. I'm absolutely loving the podcast. I leap straight in as soon as it arrives each week. Oh, these are lovely. Yeah, it's awesome. That is how you should listen to it immediately. One of my strongest childhood memories is watching the first episode, age 12, with my dad, when I probably should have been in bed, and it just turning on a this. This is the kind of thing that you like from now on, light in my brain. I love that. Dave continues, I wanted to contact you about your dislike of the iPlayer synopses. Ooh. Okay. I would say, um, I'm not going to disagree that it's a dislike, but it's uh, it's somewhat exaggerated for comic effect, in case anyone's really worried about... Uh, it's, it's certainly a mocking tone. <laughs> it, is, it is a mocking tone. It's more of a contempt. Alex has hit the nail on the, on the head. A contempt. It's, it's, it's contempt. It's just a, a little niggly thing that I find a bit annoying. Anyway, Dave continues. I'm almost certain that, at least for the early series, they are the text that was printed alongside the episodes in the Radio Times. You can look up old listings data on the BBC Genome Project, and there they are. So given this, whoever has written them isn't writing them in the 21st century, with knowledge of what the series have become or who the characters are, okay. but is instead trying to summarise, inverted commas, just another comedy, in a very tight word count, much like the iPlayer has, with a dense paper page of listings. Interesting. Yeah. I think it's still... I, I, I mean, I think that, for me, that does make a lot of sense of why they're written the way that they are. They come from a different time uh, when you had four channels and probably quite a different demographic looking at the Radio Times printed magazine as opposed to the iPlayer today. Doesn't explain why whoever's uploading them hasn't taken a moment to reflect and go, wait a minute, this is not fit for purpose because they are now on a busy website where their purpose is to convert your vague interest in finding out what Red Dwarf is about into the action are you actually watching an episode, please? So, my issue now is is with the editing or lack thereof, as opposed to the writing initially. Well, we know they've edited it. We know someone's gone in, right, and changed some words up. Well, someone's editing them now. Oh, yeah. Maybe someone who's listened to the podcast. As as at the time of recording. But I think that's that's a reason to keep mentioning them, frankly, as long as, as they stay weird. I'm not going to stop. <laughs> I'm not going to stop. They don't bother me at all, but I'm not going to stop mentioning them. Sure. Dave continues, something similar can be said about the enthusiasm of the studio audience for season one. Mm. Those people will have just requested tickets for anything. No knowledge of what the show was. Really good point. In each episode, the audience would have had no idea what came in the previous episodes or who the characters were. Also, really good point. By series two, the audience would have had a chance of seeing series one. By series three, the excited fan base would have been beating a path to the BBC ticket unit to get their seats. Yeah, I think that's really worth bearing in mind when you're looking at audience reactions in these first couple of series. I think that's a really, really, really good point that Dave brings up and well-timed as well. I refer the honourable gentleman to this episode. Again, that moment in the, with the mirror, it's, a, it's an ovation in the, Absolutely. Second, the first one, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Anyway, Dave concludes, keep up the good work. I'm loving the guests you're getting and the recast suggestions are fascinating. Well, I'm glad you think so, Dave. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. That's a really, really interesting email and um, thank you for taking the time to write it. Really appreciate it. Yeah, that's so nice. It's not just our listeners that have opinions about the show. No, that's true. We've got a former guest, Guy Kelly from episode one. Has a very strongly held opinion and I'm afraid. It's not a good one. Well, it's okay. He's putting us in our place, rightly so. He dropped this clangor on Twitch. It's a telling off. That's a point. I need to write an angry letter to the Better Than Life podcast in order to point out that the actor who played Paranoia in Confidence and Paranoia also played Dick Head, the bartender at the Lamb and Flag in Bottom. And for an episode that talked about Bottom so much, I was disgusted to not hear him included. He's not wrong, to be fair. He's not wrong. Or rather, he, he wouldn't be wrong. Exactly. He hasn't got all the evidence. No. But we have. We said everything there was to say about Lee Corns. Everything from his alternative comedy characters to, to yes, him playing Dickhead in Bottom. All of it. All of it. All of it. We chose to cut out all but the most pertinent information, which was that we vaguely remembered that he was in Grange Hill. Yeah. Think of a thing about Lee Corns. We said it. You just have to trust us. Next episode, it's a massive one. It's our eponymous episode. We're talking better than life. With John Robertson. That's a big one, isn't it? really really huge it's a great episode of the show and it's going to be a really cracking episode of the podcast until next time just remember things are fine things are fine 
Bye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.